Welcome to History Class After Hours. I am Joseph Barra, and joining me today is Ryan. Hey, Mr. Barra. Hey, we're back. Yes. After about a month off, we are back, finally recording some more episodes. And today we are going to talk about Ernest Hemingway, famous American writer. He's more than just a writer, though. Uh, Ernest Miller Hemingway was born on July 21st, 1899 in Oak Park, Illinois. His dad was a physician. His mother was a musician. His mom wanted him to appear as a twin to his younger sisters. So for his first three years of life, his hair was kept long and he was dressed in feminine clothing. His so it wasn't really like a masculine start to his life at this point. No, no. Yeah, for some reason she wanted three him girls. to look like a twin. Yeah, that's okay. His mother would force him to learn how to play the cello and he would credit this for later developing his writing style even though he really did not like his mother. And that will come back up. Uh, early on, he would develop a lifelong love for the outdoors. His father would take him to Walloon Lake in Michigan, where he learned to hunt, fish, and camp. He would excel in high school and be editor of the school newspaper. And then when he graduated, he'd move to Kansas City, where he'd begin wor working for the Kansas City Star. Uh, there, he would develop the foundations of his writing. It was said he would use short sentences, use short first paragraphs, and use vigorous English. Be positive, not negative. So jumping back to the lake, is that on the upper panhandle? or That is the know? lower peninsula. Lower peninsula. Yes. So in December of 1917, Hemingway would join the Red Cross and drive an ambulance in Italy during World War I. He initially wanted to join the Army, but he is going to be rejected because of poor eyesight. In June, he arrives in Italy, and he's instantly put to work. On his first day, he would have to respond to an explosion at a munitions factory, where he would later write about retrieving the shredded remains of female workers. I'm assuming that had to be quite a horrific scene where an ammunition factory explodes. Yeah, I, I can see where that goes. Working, working conditions were not really great during World War I. Yeah. You just had people playing with gunpowder and things like that. It was, and, help, it was, and helping no one explodes. Yes, it was quite common. On July 8th, he's going to be severely wounded by mortar fire as he was bringing chocolate and cigarettes to the men at the front line. Even though he was injured, he would carry wounded Italian soldiers to safety, which he would later win the Italian War Merit Cross for. Hemingway would say of the incident, When you go to war as a boy, you have a great illusion of immortality. Other people get killed, not you. Then, when you are badly wounded for the first time, you lose that illusion and you know it can happen to you. It would take him six months to recover from the shrapnel leg of wounds in both his legs. And while at the hospital, he would form a relationship with Edward Dorman Smith, an officer in the English Army, and the friendship is going to last decades. He's also going to fall in love with a nurse whose name was Agnes Van Karowski. When he returned to the U.S. in January 1919, he felt that she would come back to the United States, join him, and the two would get married. But then he receives a letter that March. She has left him for an Italian officer. Uh, and that is going to have lasting ramifications on the rest of his life. Um, after that, he's going to follow a lifelong pattern of abandoning a wife before they abandon him. So he's going to get married a lot. 
Yeah, so that first nurse really yes. kicked off all this domino effect. It, it messed him up in the head. Yeah. Yes. So after World War I, uh, he takes some time off to recuperate from his leg wounds, and he eventually takes a freelancing job for the Toronto Star. He'd eventually move back to Chicago where he'd meet his sister's friend, Hadley Richardson. He would claim, I knew she was the girl I was going to marry. A few months after that, the two would marry and they would soon be moving to Paris. The Hemingways would choose to live in Europe because of its low cost of living and they believed that's where the most interesting people in the world lived. While in Paris, Hemingway would become friends with famous writers Gertrude Stein, James Joyce, and painter Pablo Picasso. So there's kind of like an artistic renaissance going on yeah. in France after World War I. In his first 20 months in Paris, he would write 88 stories for the Toronto Star. He would write about the Greco-Turkish War, tuna and trout fishing, and travel stories. So he was all over the place. So he now, didn't really have like a set start with his writing. He's just jumping from job to job almost. Yep. And he's just going around writing about whatever he feels like. His first novel, The Sun Also Rises, which was released in 1926, would play heavily on his experience at the running of the Bulls in Pampelona and his new fascination with bullfighting. This is where the term lost generation become popular, popularized to describe a generation where young ad adults during World War I. It's often considered his best work. So basically, yeah, the, peop the, the generation of uh, the people fighting during World War I, he kind of coined this term, the lost generation. During the editing process of the book, he began to have an affair with Pauline Pfeiffer. After learning of the affair, Hadley would fire for a divorce and it would become official in 1927. She would get half of Hemingway's earnings from The Sun Also Rises. Soon after that, though, Hemingway would get married again to Pfeiffer. Pfeiffer came from a wealthy Arkansas family that was Catholic. She would work for Vogue magazine in Paris. Hemingway would convert to Catholicism prior to the wedding. While on his honeymoon with Pfeiffer, Hemingway would contract anthrax. Know what anthrax is? No, I do not. It's uh, it's like a spore, and it it, it can it kills you. It gets inside your uh -huh. lungs, and it kills you. Um, back in the like early two thousands, there was like anthrax scares throughout uh, the United wow. States. Like people were getting envelopes, and everyone thought anthrax was in it. Uh, in March nineteen twenty eight, couple would move to Key West, and they would have their first child. But right before leaving, Hemingway would suffer a serious injury. So it didn't take long for him to move back to the U.S. Nope. At all. Yeah. He was, yeah they, and he liked Key West. He thought it was a relaxing yeah. place. So right before they leave, Hemingway is going to suffer a severe injury in a Paris bathroom. He pulled down on a skylight. Okay. So the way he thought he was pulling down on the toilet chain. Okay. Because... For some reason, design was it's like the, the flusher was on a chain hanging from the ceiling. Yeah. So he pulled on that, flush, thinking he was flushing the toilet, and a skylight came and smoked him in the head. Ooh. And it caused a massive gash in his forehead. He's going to have a scar for the rest of his life. Hemingway would write of this, 30 thickness of toilet paper, a tourniquet of kitchen towel, and a stick of kindling wood to staunch the flow of blood. He would spend an hour and a half in surgery while they had to tie four arteries together in his forehead. So he's like, oh, this is a traumatic experience, so I'm going to write about it. Yes. Wow. When Hemingway was asked about the scar, he was always reluctant to answer. 
you're also going to see is this man suffers from, he is going to be, um, he takes a lot of shots to the head during his okay. life, and that's going to impact him. So his head's just a giant target. Yes, he's constantly getting hit in the head. So, um, Patrick Hemingway was born on June 28, 1928 in Key West. Pauline had a difficult delivery, which Hemingway would draw on when writing A Farewell to Arms, one of his more famous books. In Key West, he would also become obsessed with five-toed cats. And I guess if you go to Key West today, they're called the Hemingway cats. They're still there. Okay. Like the, the lineage. Okay. I don't, I don't know what a five... Yeah. It, I, I get I've seen I get a the picture. Concept. It's weird. It looks like they have a hand. Uh, the family would also travel to Wyoming, Massachusetts, and New York. While visiting his first son, Bumby, in New York, he would get a devastating message. His father had killed himself. Hemingway was devastating. After having earlier written his father, telling him not to worry about financial difficulties, the letter arrived minutes after the suicide. He would then comment, I'll probably go the same way. Well, that's unfortunate to like know that it only took like another... Yeah, if he maybe got that letter like five minutes earlier, he, he may not have done it. So I'm sure that was riding on his, his conscience yeah. throughout his life. Upon returning to Key West, he began to write A Farewell to Arms. It's a book about an ambulance driver in Italy during World War I, which is what he did during World War I. He would rewrite the ending 17 times, which would delay the release. Um, during the summers, though, he would spend his time in Wyoming. And while he was out west, he is going to be in a horrific car crash in Billings, Montana in 1930. He breaks his arm. The surgeon tended the compound spiral fracture and bone to bone with a kangaroo tendon. Wow. I don't know where they got the kangaroo yeah, tendon from, like, but. So we're, they're in what, Wyoming right now? Or He's in Montana. Montana. So, yeah, so how are you going to get a kangaroo? Wow. But that's how they, they fused the bone back together. Yeah. He'd be hospitalized for several weeks and unable to use his writing hand for a year. In 1933, Hemingway and Pauline would go on a safari in Kenya. The 10-week trip would provide the basis for his next book, Green Hills of Africa. Here, he would contract amoebic dysentery, which would cause a prolapsed intestine. Wow. That's, that's a lot. How's he, how's he do this to himself? He's like Terminator. He just keeps on getting taking hits and just keeps on going. Prolapse intestine is like literally your intestine collapse. Yeah. And you can't use it anymore. Dysentery is bad anyway. That's what killed everybody on that game, the Oregon Trail. Yeah. Upon returning, he bought a boat and spent a good amount of time sailing the Caribbean. And then 1937, though, the Spanish Civil War breaks up. Hemingway will go to Spain to cover it, and despite Pauline not wanting him to go into a war zone. While in Spain, he'd meet journalist Martha Gellhorn. Like Hadley, she was from St. Louis, and like Pauline, she worked for Vogue magazine. In 1939, he goes to Cuba. This is where the slow and painful split from Pauline would begin. Martha is going to join him in Havana. Hemingway and Pauline would officially get divorced in 1940, and soon after, he'd be married to Martha. Once again, you're seeing this trend. Gellhorn inspired him to write his most famous novel. It's called For Whom the Bell Tolls which he began in March 1939 and finished in July 1940. It's going to be published in 19, October of 1940. It's about an American volunteer fighting during the Spanish Civil War. Once again, he's, he, a lot of his books are pulling from his life experiences. Yeah. 
In January 1941, Martha is sent to China on assignment for Collier's magazine. Hemingway went with her, sending in dispatches for the newspaper PM, but in general, he disliked China. In war-torn China, assaulted by the, was insulted, assaulted by the invading Japanese, Hemingway passed along information in 1941 to the U.S. government, reporting to an Army intelligence team in Manila. So he is actually kind of getting in a little bit of the espionage game right now. Man, so he's, he's doing a lot. Mm -hmm. he's, he's not only there reporting, but he's giving reports to the U.S. military about the Japanese Army. A 2009 book suggests during the period he may have also been recruited to work for the Soviet intelligence agents under the name Agent Argo. Wow, come on. Double, <laughs> double spies don't, don't, don't end up too well. Slash book writer. Yeah. So World War II breaks out, and this is going to prompt Hemingway to oversee an ad hoc intelligence operation in Havana in 1942. Um, Basically, he, he was convinced that there was Spanish fascists living in Cuba, and they were going to create a potential fifth column, which is basically like, a, a, like an underground resistance movement. Okay, so they're like, all right, these guys are going to throw a coup. Yeah, and they're just going to try to like, destroy like, the American war effort and all okay. that stuff, because a lot of oil and stuff went through the Caribbean. Okay. Um, so the... Finca's guest house became the headquarters of Hemingway's counterintelligence unit called the Crook Factory. That's what he called it. So I'm assuming he got a lot of this espionage from when he was in Japan. Um, like this. No, he's completely he's completely place. untrained. He's just doing it. He's going on a wing. Yep, he's like, I, I think I could do this. The American ambassador, Spruill Braden, appreciative of Hemingway's efforts, asserted that he built up an excellent organization and did an A1 job. Hemingway's third wife, Martha Gellhorn, was less convinced. Critical of the Crook Factory's noisy nighttime parties and heavy drinking at the Finca, it seemed a strange way to conduct spying. He then convinced the Cuban government to help him refit his boat, the Pilar, which he intended to use to ambush German submarines off the coast of Cuba. So the Germans had sunk 263 ships in the Caribbean, and he felt like he personally could stop it. So he's trying to stop all these U-boats and submarines with his lively ship? It's like an old wooden ship. Yeah. Yes. Right. It's like a yacht. <laughs> Can't do much against submarines. No. Also, Pilar's wooden structure was too fragile to mount 50 caliber machine guns. I see. So the crew is left with light machine guns. They also had bazookas and grenades carefully hidden below deck. Hemingway would recruit Cubans, Spaniards, and Americans, including for uh, a time his two young sons, Patrick and Gregory, along with Marine Sergeant Don Saxon, who was sent by the government to work the radio. His goal was to capture a German U-boat. The closest they ever come was they spotted one about a thousand yards away. The crew scrambled to get in position, with brother Patrick holding a Lee Enfield rifle. Gregory clutching his mother's old gun, and just like an old hunting rifle. So they're trying to sink submarines with bullets. Yes. At this point. The crewmen unmoored the bomb from the flying bridge. However, the U-boat sped away, uninterested in the disguised fishing boat. <laughs> the angry crew hurled insults at the Germans. As for um, Hemingway, young Gregory distinctly remembered his mocking speech about the episode, kept by telling his son to fix him a gin and tonic. 
From 44 to 45, he goes to war, uh, Europe as a war correspondent, where he would meet Mary Welsh, who was a writer for Time magazine. He would quickly become infatuated with her. Martha would come and join him in Europe. She had been forced across the Atlantic in a ship filled with explosives because Hemingway refused to help her get a press pass on a plane. Kind of see where that relationship's going. He has lost interest in her. She arrived in London to find him hospitalized with another concussion from a car accident. She was unsympathetic to his plight. She accused him of being a bully and told him that she was um, through, absolutely finished. Hemingway would then ask Mary to marry him after their third time meeting. She would become his fourth wife in 1946. Hemingway would accompany troops on D-Day wearing a large head bandage from his car accident. He, however, was not permitted to go ashore because he was deemed precious cargo. As the landing craft came close ashore, it was fired upon and forced to turn him back. Hemingway would write, The first, second, third, fourth, fifth waves of landing troops lay where they had fallen, looking like so many heavily laden bundles on the flat, pebbly stretch between the sea and first cover. He is then going to attach himself to the 22nd Infantry Regiment as they move towards Paris. He would become the de facto leader of a small band of militia in the city of Rambouillet, just outside of Paris. He would, however, though, get into serious trouble by the Geneva Convention, and charges were formally brought against him because it's illegal for war correspondents to fight because they're supposed to be there just writing down what's going on, and therefore you're not supposed to shoot them either. Yeah. It's kind of like a medic thing. Like yeah. You can't act as a medic and then go fight. Um, he would argue he just gave them advice and he was able to beat the charges. <laughs> he would be present for the liberation of Paris and then catch pneumonia while covering the Battle of the Bulge. He would earn the Bronze Star for bravery during the war. He was recognized for having been under fire in combat areas in order to obtain an accurate picture of conditions with the commendation that through his talent of expression, Mr. Hemingway enabled readers to obtain a vivid picture of the difficulties and triumphs of the frontline soldier and the organization in combat. Well, Hemingway was also working with the OSS as well as other U.S. agencies, including the FBI, State Department, and Office of Naval Intelligence. But in a stunning twist, he also found evidence uh, beginning in late 1940, that he had uh, spied for other organizations, primarily the KGB. Man, so there, so he's been all over the place. Yes, with, but with how he's being allegated against. Correct. So around December 1940, um, Russian agents had recruited Hemingway for our work on ideological grounds. Though it's unclear what exactly they wanted from Hemingway, his influence and access as well as his talent as a propagandist would have made him a potentially valuable intelligent asset. Although Hemingway apparently met several times with the Soviets during the 40s, he may have ultimately done little to help them. It seems to have been motivated more by opposition to fascism than any particular allegiance to communism, and likely regretted entering any, into any arrangement as more time passed. So after World War II, Hemingway would go back to Cuba, and that's where he marries Mary. Um, and the Hemingway family is going to suffer a series of health problems um, and accidents following the war. Hemingway was involved in another car accident. Man, he just can't catch a break. Where he shattered his, uh, his head again, <laughs> suffered another deep wound on his head. Mary broke her right, then left ankle in successive ski accidents. 
In 47, Hemingway's son Patrick was in a serious car accident. It left him with a head wound as well and severely ill. All of Hemingway's literary friends from France began to die, and Hemingway went into a uh, deep state of depression. He began to suffer from headaches, high blood pressure, weight problems, and diabetes. Much of these were caused by previous accidents and a life of heavy drinking. His health issues would cause him not to be able to finish two novels that he had started. But in 1948, Ernest and Mary will go back to Europe. In Venice, Hemingway would fall in love with 19-year-old Adriana Avincic. The affair was platonic, but tensions grew between Mary and him. Of their travels, he would ride across the river and into the trees, which was panned by critics. He refocused and would write The Old Man and the Sea in eight weeks. The book would earn him the Pulitzer Prize and international celebrity. That's one of his big ones. Yeah. In 1954, while in Africa, he would be involved in two successive plane crashes. The first came when he was sightseeing over the Belgian Congo. The plane struck a utility pole and crashed into heavy brush. He suffered a head wound, and Mary suffered two broken ribs. The next day, they would get on another plane to reach a medical care in Entebbe, and the plane would explode on takeoff. Wow. Hemingway suffered burns and another concussion, which was serious enough that caused leakage of cerebral fluid. Oh. So he was leaking like brain fluid out of his nose, which is never a good thing. Man, you can't catch a break with these concussions, it's, uh, getting them all the time. His brain has got to be just mush. Yeah. Mary eventually told people he suffered two cracked discs, kidney and liver rupture, a dislocated shoulder, and a cracked skull. In February, he had healed enough to go on a fishing trip with his son Patrick and his wife, but due to the pain, he was in a pretty bad mood and was hard to get along with. When a bushfire broke out, he was injured again, this time with more burns to his legs, torsos, lips, and arms. The accidents would lead to physical deterioration, which would lead to him to turn to more alcohol. Later that year, he wins the Nobel Prize, but he's unable to attend the ceremony due to his injuries. So after the communist takeover of Cuba, Hemingway would move back to the United States. His health would continue to deteriorate and became paranoid that he was being watched. He would also begin to worry about money and his safety. He was worried about taxes and never being able to retrieve his manuscripts in Cuba. He also believed that the FBI was watching him. In reality, the FBI was watching him because of his World War II correspondence with the Soviet Union, also because of his actions in Cuba. J. Edgar Hoover had an agent watching him in Havana during the 50s. Um, so unable to care for Hemingway, Mary is going to have him flown down to the Mayo Clinic in Minneapolis for hypertension treatments, and the FBI is going to be aware of his movements. So he wasn't extremely, he wasn't like unrationally paranoid. There was actually people watching him. Right. While at the Mayo Clinic, though, he is going to be treated with electroshock therapy. 15 times. Jeez. That's not what you do for hypertension. That's what they used to do for uh, people with mental illness. Is they would shock you. They thought it would reset the brain. Uh, by the time he left in January 61, he was in ruins. In April, Mary would find Hemingway holding a shotgun in the kitchen. She called his doctor, who had him sedated, flown back to the Mayo and clinic, and he would receive three more electroshock treatments. He'd return to I Idaho on June 30th, and two days later, shoot himself with his favorite shotgun. He'll be buried in Sun Valley, Idaho. Uh, Hemingway's behavior during his final years had been similar to that of his father before he killed himself. Other members of his family would suffer a similar fate. It's like his 
grandkids, several of them commit suicide. Several like great grandkids commit suicide. It's yeah. like this. There's like this family. There's like this line of this uh, mental illness there. That's rough. Mm-hmm. Both were suffering from what is called hereditary hemochromatosis, which is, which is the excessive buildup of iron and tissues, which causes mental and physical deterioration. It's also believed that he was suffering from CTE. They didn't know what CTE was back then. Now we know what CTE is. Yeah. It's what you get for hitting your head too much. Right. So Hemingway's legacy to American literature is his style. Writers who uh, came after him either emulated or avoided it. After his reputation was established with the publication of The Sun Also Rises, he became a spokesperson for the post-World War I generation, having established a style to follow. His books were burned in Berlin in 1933 as being a monument of modern decadence and disavowed by his parents as filth. Reynolds asserts that legacy is, Hemingway left stories and novels so starkly moving that some have become part of our cultural heritage. So there is the story of one of the great American authors, Ernest Hemingway, and all his accidents. Yeah, he had a lot going on with that. He had a very complicated life. Yeah. It's not just like a writer. He had a lot to draw from. That's probably why he was such a good writer. Jumped all over the world. (laughs) Got hurt all over the world. Went went hunting for uh, U-boats. Yep. uh, On a a yacht. Hit his head. Yep. Got two plane crashes, so. Well, thank you for joining us. Next week, we got the history of spontaneous combustion. Nice. Yeah, that's going to be a, that's gonna a be scorcher. Nice. Have a good one. Thank you for tuning in to History Class After Hours, the show where we talk about the things your history teachers didn't have time to teach you. If you wanted to stay updated on upcoming events for the History Club, please visit www.starsmillhistoryc.wixsite.com forward slash 2020. If you liked this episode, please share it with your friends and subscribe to our channel on iTunes Podcast, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. Be on the lookout for new episodes, and we'll be posting every week. Until next time, stay curious.